Hey, I have a question for you this morning. Uh, what is your paradise? What is, what is your paradise? That's a question I want you to think about. What, what is that place that you feel like you, you'd, you'd never, ever want to leave if you finally got to go there? Maybe that place looks like a, a tropical island with, with crystal clear blue water, perfect temperatures, the, the right amount of sun, good music off in the distance, and, and great food all day long. Or maybe that place looks like Disneyland, a place full of life and people having fun, and they're riding rides, and they're screaming, and they're living out their fantasies uh, from one of their favorite Christmas, or I'm sorry, Disney classics. Or maybe that place is somewhere on the valley floor of Yosemite National Park as you gaze up at Yosemite Falls and El Capitan and Half Dome. And you just take in that breathtaking spectacle of nature. Whatever it is, we all have those places where we find ourselves saying, I hope I never have to leave this place. God has, has truly created a, a gorgeous world for us to enjoy and to live in. You know, sometimes on a long road trip, Tiff and I will talk and I'd ask her a question like, if you could live any place in the world and like cost wasn't a factor, where do you think you'd choose to live? You know, sometimes we might talk about places in Europe or, or places on the coast or places with a great view or whatever. Even places sometimes like far removed from humanity, like sometimes isolation and quiet seems like the perfect recipe for a happy life. And as I thought about that, that question over the years, one place for me just seems to come back into my mind over and over and over again. And it's, it's funny because I, I can't tell you exactly why. There isn't like one thing about this place that, that makes me love it. I, I guess it's just all the little things that sort of add up to make it special to me. But for me, that place is Monterey, right here in California. I, I love how it's overcast. I, I love all the, the marine wildlife. I love the smell in the air. I love the, the life that the town has from all the people who come from all around to visit. I, I love the beauty of, of the nature that surrounds it. I love the great food from all the amazing restaurants and this, this small, dense little piece of land. Uh, for me, Monterey is like utterly fascinating. It, it feels magical to visit. Uh, and sometimes it feels like it would be the most magical place in the world to live. I, I could see myself saying, I don't, I don't ever want to leave here. And I'll tell you something, this is how amazing God is. Six months ago, we were able to get a home in Pacifica that is often overcast and has lots of marine wildlife and, and a great smell in the air and tourists who, who visit from all around and the, and the beauty of nature. Like, you get the idea. God gave us something that feels rather magical to me. You know, having grown up in places like Modesto, Pacifica feels very much more like a, a dream than a reality sometimes. And this may surprise you, but that actually scares me just a little bit. Uh, throughout today's message, I'm going to try to explain to you why I say that. Uh, this morning we are finishing up our One Kingdom Indivisible sermon series, and it's a series that has been meaningful to me. It's been meaningful for me to teach it. I hope it's been meaningful for you 
to, to listen to it. It's been meaningful to partner with other churches and, and join them in this journey as well. But I, I want you to wrestle with, with this relationship, the relationship that we as Christians have with this, this broad world all around us. You know, today is, is something of a, of a different theme than maybe the rest of the series thus far. And it, and it may have a little bit of a different tone, different feel, because I really want today's message to be more of a reflection of sorts than a, a time of an intense instruction and teaching. I, I want to look back at what we've learned, at what we've covered, and try to discover like the, the now what that emerges from all of this. You know, thus far we, we've, we've learned seven things from seven different messages. Uh, number one, we learned that, that God created me or humanity to bless others. That, that was his goal. That was his purpose for creation from the very beginning. In week two, we said we, we cannot live in unity as long as we live with impunity. That, that blessing may have been the, the purpose, but the story of God's people has often been a story full of people getting away with, with hoarding blessing for themselves. Uh, in, in week three, we said we need to be set apart together, that the goal is holiness. That is what being set apart really means, and holiness is a, a communal effort to escape the, the forbidden trees and the false trees and the lies of this world and rest in the truth of Christ's kingship. In week four, we said that, that power is God's to give. It is never ours to take. And so the, the story of humanity is a story defined by, by power grabs where person goes against person and nation against nation, where humanity has tried to, to wrestle power away from others. But it it's not for us to take power. That, that's not God's purpose for us. It's for God to give it in his timing and in his wisdom. He, he grants power to those that he chooses. And he also takes power away when he chooses. In week five, we said that only Jesus has the power to save. You know, many false prophets and kings and nations have risen over these centuries and millennia promising lots of things. They, they promise freedom. They promise peace. They, they promise salvation. They promise protection. But that's not the power that they actually have because they're comprised of, of sinful people and they are temporal and they are terminal powers in an otherwise eternal creation. Jesus is the only one who actually has the power to save us. In week six, we said illuminate the world, that our job as the church, as people of God, then is not to go around telling stories and glorifying inferior kingdoms, but to be proclaimers of the only and the eternal and superior kingdom, the kingdom of God and Jesus, its king, that Jesus is the light in our dark world and we as his disciples are the lights on a hill, the salt of the earth, that our job is to go and to illuminate wherever the world lives in darkness. And then finally last week in week seven, we said choose to open the door, that the message of Jesus is a message of a restored, renewed and eternal creation, a new creation. But that creation is, is presented with a choice, the choice to receive the light and the kingship of Christ or to deny it. That many people will choose to like Jesus, to be a fan of Jesus, but few will choose to sincerely call him both Lord and King in their hearts. 
And so he stands at the door of each of our lives and he's there and he's knocking. And so the question remains, will we lay down our own crowns? Will we open the door and let the real king come into our lives? And so as you reflect on these last seven weeks, what I hope you begin to see is that there's a progression here. It's a progression that that reflects the slow and steady surrender of oneself. Where from the beginning of time, humanity has repeatedly taken up the cause of self. And yet Jesus calls us to come and just lay it down. It reminds me of an old hymn by, by Theodore Menad. Theodore Menad. And, and I enjoy this hymn. And I'm sure you've sang it many, many times. Uh, whether you have or not kind of doesn't matter. But I, I just want to invite you where you are to close your eyes. Right now, just wherever you are, just close your eyes and and meditate on the words that I'm about to read slowly. Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be when I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee, Yet he found me, I beheld him, bleeding on the accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower while I whispered, less of self and more of thee, higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we we come to you this morning in full recognition, full acknowledgement that the heart of mankind sometimes feels only evil all the time. I, I recognize that same tendency in my own heart. I recognize that, that every time I choose sin, like Adam and Eve, I'm pursuing a false tree, a, a tree which leads to death and not life. Lord, the sin in my life reflects more than just my mistakes. It reflects those moments when I take for myself the power, when I take for myself the blessing, when I take for myself the lordship, when I take for myself my life. And yet you, O Lord, remind us that whoever seeks their own life will lose it. Whoever surrenders their own life will find it. Lord, may we be a people to surrender our power, to surrender our blessing, to surrender our lordship, so that you may be glorified as king and lord and holy and true. We pray for this, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Church, as I I share this final reflection on this series, I share it with the the understanding and the acknowledgement that we are a people in pain. 
But it's what we do with our pain that I want to address this morning as best I can with brevity. What we do with our pain and our suffering matters. Because if our pain compels us as God's people in the direction of grasping for earthly power, in the direction of, of grasping for earthly kingdoms and grasping for early comfort, earthly comfort, we are moving steadily in the, in the wrong direction. But that's exactly what many of us do and exactly what, what I feel I am often personally challenged and convicted by because many of us have fallen in love with the earthly things and with the earthly power and with the earthly kingdoms and with the earthly comforts that surround us. We, we've created and we've fallen in love with our own sense of paradise on this earth. Many of us like what we have and we don't, we don't really wanna give that up. We don't, we don't wanna surrender our wealth or our, our power or our privilege, none of that. And when those things are threatened, just look around us. Our response is to protect, to fight for, to restore. But is that the way of Jesus? Is that the way of his followers in scripture? There's a, there's a phrase from the Bible. You may have seen it before, you may not have. And if you have seen it, you may not know what it means or where it's from, but it's a very important concept for us this morning. Often it's presented as one word. In reality, it's actually two words. But sometimes you'll see it this way. You'll see it as Maranatha. But more accurately, it's uh, Marana and Tha, or Maran and Atha. Commentators are divided on that. But it's an Aramaic phrase transliterated into Greek by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church. And it's a word that means, come, Lord, or, or Lord, come. And commentators say that, that Paul's usage of this term is, is clearly, without a doubt, within things in mind. In other words, this is an eschatological statement. It's about eschatology. But I want you to think of where that phrase comes from. Come, Lord. Where does that come from? Because it doesn't come from a place usually of wealth or a place of power or a place of privilege at all. Maranatha is, is the cry of the tired the oppressed, the, the poor, the widowed, the, the orphaned, the suffering, the weak, the sick, the lame, the blind, and the people who have nothing left to lose in this present life and everything to gain with the return of Jesus. Nobody who lives like kings, nobody who lives in paradise, nobody who's living their best life now cries Maranatha. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke's version of the Beatitudes. And as we do, I want you to listen to who Jesus is talking to. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. 
Church, the, the people whom Jesus is talking to, those are the people who cry, Maranatha. Those are the people who have everything to gain by Christ's return. In verse 20, they don't belong to a kingdom here on earth. The kingdoms of earth, they haven't blessed them. They're poor. And they haven't fed them. They're hungry. And they haven't provided joy at all. They're they're weeping. And so Jesus promises them a different kingdom. He says, theirs will be the kingdom of God. Church, we've talked a lot in this series about our relationship with two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and then we have the kingdoms of this world, like our own. So the question is, how do we as Christians understand our place within the kingdoms of this world? For us, that means, how how do we as Christians understand our place within the United States of America? How do we understand that? How does that work? And much of the rhetoric and and, and tension within the churches in this country right now kind of centers on on how we understand those two kingdoms and and their relationship with one another. That that, that question is is central to what so many churches are talking about right now. And I read an article this week from Westmont College in Southern California, and it was entitled, God Bless America, Can Christians Be Too Patriotic? And you might have thought that it was written in 2020 uh, because it was as relevant to our conversation today as, as anything I've read in the last few months. And yet in reality, it was written in 2002, right on the heels of 9-11. But in the article, the author, uh, David Lawrence, said this. He said, my question today is, is simply this. Can Christians be too patriotic? Can patriotism in fact, be unchristian. He says, as with so many things, it is a matter of degree. But he says this, he says, I believe that patriotism is unchristian when. Notice he doesn't say, I believe patriotism is unchristian. He gives conditions. When the following things happen, he believes patriotism is unchristian. When it is a substitute, for critical thinking, when it boils down complex reality into simplistic bipolar paradigms such as us and them and good and evil. We see this now, Republican, Democrat. When it presumes that America is God's new chosen nation and that Americans are God's chosen people. And lastly, he says, when it Americanizes the idea of blessing. And I want to expand on that. His his quote about that last point is this. He said, implying that Americans are blessed by God simply for being Americans cheapens the biblical concept of blessing and often equates it with material prosperity. But he says, what about those Christians who are living and often suffering in other lands? Are we blessed by God and they are not? What about the dirt poor Pentecostals, he says, I met in Ukraine, who in Soviet times suffered because of their faith? Are we blessed by God and they're not? He says, the lyrics of God Bless America are not statements of fact. They are, in fact, a prayer. In 1938, that is what Irving Berlin had in mind. 
Now, all of his points are important. All of them are relevant. But it's that last one, that last quote, that I want to spend just a little more time on. Because I think it's what poses the, the greatest threat to our cry of Maranatha. That sometimes we can be so in love with our present kingdom and our present circumstances and our present reality that the words of the Beatitudes are little more than, than poetic platitudes. Here's what I mean. We enjoy some wonderful benefits in our country, benefits that have, have come at the hands of sacrifice, benefits that have come at the hand of hard work, benefits that have come at the hand of, of costing people their very lives. We, we are the safest nation on earth. We are the wealthiest nation on earth. And we have some of the most breathtaking views and places in all the world. We, we truly do live like in an incredible place. And I'm not disparaging that in the slightest. I have enjoyed the life that I get to live here and I'm thankful for those who have made this life possible. But here's my question. What if that enjoyment or that safety and that prosperity crosses a line for us? What happens when our hearts have swayed so far toward present circumstances that we, we no longer in the depths of our hearts seek refuge and peace in the greater kingdom? What if Maranatha loses all its meaning? What if, what if my heart can't truly say, Lord, come, because my heart is so in love with this kingdom? Church, this broken world for us as Christians, it, it isn't supposed to be our paradise. You know, Paul said in, in Philippians, this is chapter one, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two, he says. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. For, for Paul... Remaining in this world isn't about enjoying his best life now. He says it's about fruitful labor. It's about work that produces fruit for Jesus. And what Paul wants, ultimately, he says, isn't here. He wants to leave because he knows that what is to come is so much better than the best that the present world has to offer. And it might be tempting to kind of think, well, you know, Paul didn't get to live like we live and he doesn't get to enjoy what we enjoy and so on. But we kind of have to remember that, that Paul was a citizen of the most powerful, most peaceful and most prominent kingdom of his day. He was a Roman citizen during the Roman Empire, an empire that was all about Pax Romana, all about Roman peace. And what did he say? He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And it is that same Paul who writes Maranatha, Lord, come. Wherever you are right now, whatever you're doing, 
I want you to be still. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to listen to these words from various psalmists. I'm going to read a series of passages, and as I do, I want you to notice and I want you to internalize the emotions of the writer. What are they saying? How are they feeling? And what exactly are they longing for? So wherever you are right now, I want you to close your eyes, listen to these words, and reflect. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. And finally, Psalm 141. I call to you, Lord. Come quickly to me. Hear me when I call to you. And with your eyes remaining closed, I want to ask you, what did you hear? Were these the words of comfortable people? Or were these the words of people who have nothing to lose in this present life? and everything to gain in what's to come. Open your eyes, church. These are the words of God's people. They are words not rooted in the here and now, but in the not yet. They are rooted in one kingdom, indivisible, a kingdom which cries out, Maranatha, Lord, come. Lord, come quickly. Church, the the part that scares me about living where we live, where I live, as wonderful as it is, is that somewhere along the way, I could fall so in love with it that my heart no longer yearns, that my heart no longer cries, Lord, come, Maranatha. I'm not there yet. And, And if I ever get there, if I ever get too comfortable, if I ever stop saying to live is Christ and to die is gain, then like the rich young ruler, Jesus may yet challenge me or challenge us, my my family and I, to sell it all, to give it away, and in so doing, cry, Maranatha. 
This week I saw a headline about a former billionaire named Chuck Feeney. He was featured in a, a Forbes magazine article who for many years, or many years ago rather, made it his goal to give away all of his wealth in his lifetime. And at 89 years old, living in a rented apartment somewhere here in San Francisco, he is finally broke. He has given away $8 billion to charities, to universities, to foundations. He currently owns one pair of shoes, no car, and he rarely eats out. He's the inspiration behind Bill and Melinda Gates, behind Warren Buffett, and behind so many more who've all decided to follow in his footsteps by giving away their wealth. Now, whether Christ is his motivation, I, I tried to find, I couldn't verify, yet I think his story needs to be told because it's a story that reminds us that this life isn't our paradise that our present reality was never supposed to involve our own power, our own prosperity, our own privilege. Our present reality is terminal. The cry of an indivisible kingdom is a cry of Maranatha. And so as we wrap up and we end this series, I think it's, it's only fitting that we revisit those final words of the book of Revelation, the final words of your entire Bible. I invite you to open your Bible up to Revelation 22. And here the writer says, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Church, those are the words of Jesus before he welcomes us into the true paradise to eat from the true tree of life. Church, that the world around us is weary. The world around us is in pain. People of all stripes are in anguish right now. May the church of Christ be a people not in love with another kingdom and another king. May the church of Christ be a people who are not in love with power, in love with wealth, and in love with selfish gain. May the church of Christ, with one voice united, cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. In you and you alone do we put our hope. Church, can you cry Maranatha from the depths of your heart this morning? I hope you can. I invite you to. And if you would like to, to call out for Christ in your life, uh, email us at questions at lakemercedchurch.com. We'd love to do that with you. Uh, God bless you. I hope this series has challenged you and encouraged you. And at the end of it all, may we be a people who cries out, Maranatha, Lord, come, come quickly. Your world is far greater than the one we have now. God bless you, my friends. We'll see you next time.